Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Friday, April 10th, 2015. The broken record continues. More Easter madness ahead. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to, you know, actually open up our Bible, look at what God's Word says in context to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, self-styled prophets and prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, people whose books we need to be buying and using as the curriculum in our small group Bible studies to see if what they're actually saying squares with God's Word or, well, unfortunately, see if what they're saying is actually not what God's Word says and find out that, well, what they're really doing is teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. So that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. It uh, It's politically incorrect. Yeah, I get all of that. Uh, the idea, though, here is that uh, we want to equip you so that you don't get schnookered and bamboozled and uh, hoodwinked by false doctrine and things like that. So, and oh, and by the way, I'm not exempt from this uh, little uh, exercise, if you would. In fact, uh, because I'm a teacher in the church, I strongly recommend that you compare everything that I'm saying to what God's Word says in context to see if what I'm saying is actually what God's Word says. Yeah, I don't get a pass. The Apostle Paul didn't get a pass. You know, you think of the church in Berea. They actually checked the gospel that uh, Paul was preaching with the written word of God. And at that time, all they had was the Old Testament to see if what he was saying was true. Yeah, that means even I have to be tested. So no human being gets a pass. And even if an angel were to appear to you in a vision in the night um, or, you know, at your bedside or, you know, while you're having Starbucks coffee, you still need to catechize the uh, the angel too, because you know Scripture teaches that uh, the 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 devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. So yeah, nobody gets a pass. You gotta test everything against the written word of God. That we know is sure. That we know is true. So what we're gonna do today? We'll do a uh, kind of couple of things here in the first hour. No theme today, although there's common ground kind of thing, and at least 
first half you know of the first hour we're going to be looking at some more easter madness and then in the uh, and then after the break we're going to look at email and then we're going to end the week off with uh, the easter sermon that i delivered at the congregation that i serve we will be ending off this week's episode of fighting for the faith with my easter sermon so that's how we're going to be doing our thing today and uh, in fact, I need to kind of set this up. What we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be taking a look at kind of like the tip- typical, how does, how does a postmodern liberal preach the resurrection of Jesus? Well, we're going to be listening to uh, the Reverend Greg Bolt, and he's got a short little homily that he delivered. The audio isn't all that good, although I tried to work with it. And he's from First Presbyterian Church in Nebraska City, Nebraska. It's Again, it's a short homily, but you'll kind of get the idea of what we're doing there. And then after we're done listening to that, we'll switch gears and we'll listen to uh, a little bit of Stephen Furtick. I, you know, I watched his Easter sermon twice, and it's not going to make the, uh, the cut this year for our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. But I got to say, there was, he wasn't really on his game. I yeah, I, I just it's weird. It, it 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 he literally looked like he was kind of forcing it. It was very formulaic. And uh, we'll, we're going to take a couple of sound bites from his sermon where he, you know, allegorizes some element of the uh of the Easter narrative and narcissizes it. So we'll take a look at that and then we'll do email after the first break and then like I said we'll we'll end the uh the week off with the Easter sermon that I presented. And so that's what we're going to do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're going to be doing kind of a postmodern emergent look at what do you do with the Easter narrative if you're kind of like a rebellion type of person in your theology, well, since we're doing that, that requires us to do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Yes, you will hear on the kettle drums, that's actually Rod Bell himself sitting in on this session. This is their homage to uh, Strauss's also Sprach Zarathustra. Yep. And, and as you can tell, they have freed themselves from the modernist limiting definitions of notes used in the past in classical music and are just letting the spirit guide them through this amazing avant-garde musical piece. Here, let's listen in as they get ready to build to the crescendo. causes blood to come gushing out of my ears every single time. So what we're going to be listening to is a short little homily, Easter homily, by uh, the Reverend Greg Bolt. And uh, the name of the uh, homily is entitled, The Story's Not Over. Here we go. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's, that's the end of the story. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. He is reading from the Gospel of Mark's account of the resurrection. It seems as if, though, that 
it's not the end of the story. We, we come through life, and we all know that it's not all Easter morning. It's full of joy and excitement and candy and Easter bunnies. There are many, many good Fridays in our lives. Yeah, um, well, Good Friday, you know, that's part of the liturgical calendar. Y yeah, I mean, how old am I now? <laughs> yeah, um, but see, the thing is, I was born in May, so I kind of missed the one in 1968. So, yeah, so from 1969 until 2015, you know, that's how many, you know, Good Fridays there's been in my life, you know. Moments where there doesn't seem to be hope, where all is lost, and where we have nowhere else to go. <clears throat> right, so we've allegorized Good Friday. Yeah, so how many Good Friday? You may have had a lot of Good Fridays. Those days when it just seems like there's just no hope. That's your Good Friday moment. I imagine these women, the first to announce the good news, to see the resurrection, I imagine them being lost and hopeless and devastated. Not only was their Savior dead, but now his body was gone. And they thought, what was the point of all of this? Well, the reason his body was gone was, you see, you read the text, right? It was because he actually had risen from the grave. Did you pay attention to that little detail? There's that. Little word. Go. Just as he told you. He has gone to you. He will meet you in Galilee. It's in those little <coughs> moments that the big moments seem not quite as painful. Right. So in the little moments, it makes the big moments not as painful. Mm -hmm. Boy, I, I'm just not feeling comforted by this message at all. It's those little moments that give us a glimpse of the kingdom. This morning I wanted to share with you a meditation from so now he's going to share a, a, a thought regarding the resurrection from Rob Bell. Yeah, and you think that Rob Bell still doesn't have influence on churches today. About this very thing. You have breath. The exhale. The inhale. This life force that gently and quietly, unassumingly surges through you, in and out. Your breath enters and then leaves your body, and your body is made up of all these molecules which make up these cell cells, which make up these systems. You are this odd blend of soul and spirit, dust and bone. You have hair and eyelids and toes and elbows and knees and opinions. And you make assumptions and you have expectations. 
You are this potluck of emotions and feelings and physicality. You are part mountain and part ocean and part spirit. I'm part mountain and ocean and spirit. Oh, what platitudes. You are a fascinating, endless mystery. And then you move about the world. And there is cement and taxes. And there is your insurance agent, and then there's the person you buy bread from, and you have people that you love, and you have people who are like human sandpaper. Yeah, human sandpaper. Whew, yeah, that's quite a... I have no idea what he's talking about. They annoy you to no end. There are people who embrace you, and you embrace on a regular day, that there are people that you pass by... One, you pass by one on a street in a large city on the other side of the world and you will never be close to them again as long as you live. You live in this body and with this breath that comes and goes and then in this body you experience this world with wind and waves and trees and rocks and deserts and mountains. It's all part of what you call your life. And in these experiences with this breath coming and going, and in this body with these people that you know, and this set of circumstances that is called your life, you have been, you have these experiences, and some of these experiences fill you with hope and with life. Sometimes it's a beautiful song, and sometimes it's, it's holding the hand of your daughter. Sometimes it's sitting by the bed, your grandfather takes his last breath. Sometimes it's a holiday meal with relatives. Sometimes it's friends from school. Sometimes it's that moment at work where you get the sense that what you're doing matters. We have these moments of meaning, these moments of substance, these moments that when we think, yes, there is a point to this. There is, there doesn't seem to be a point to this homily at all. And then there are other moments. The moments of despair, the moments when it doesn't go well. There are long, cold silences. There is that thing that happens when the alarm goes off in the morning, this morning, and you think, another day. There's that thing that happens when you are driving to work and you think, why? What's the point? There's that small habit that... Yeah, like, that's what I'm thinking right now. Why? What's the point of this? ...grew and grew until now it's like a destructive pattern and you don't know what to do with it. And so what happens ever so gradually if we do not guard our hearts is that we come to be gradually overtaken by this pervasive sense that there, there might not be a point to it. Underneath it all actually is random and pointless. And so what happens is those good, beautiful, true, moving, inspiring moments, the lump in your throat, the tear in your eye, that sense when you embrace somebody, and it feels like you're holding the universe in your hands. Those moments start to feel like they're just 
little detours and escape from how real it is, which is cold, dark, lonely, and pointless. Resurrection is the opposite. Resurrection says, oh, no, 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 no. These glimpses, these are actually the real thing. They're the thing that undergird the whole thing. Just that moment when the person said that kind word and it ignited a whole new world in your heart, that was just an aberration from how things are. That was a sign, a symbol of a glimpse, a glance of how it actually is. Resurrection says that this is our home and that our home is good. Resurrection says that not only is our home good, but everything about our home that is wrong and twisted and broken and destructive and flawed and failed, everything about it, whether it may hurt and whether it may be something like cancer that is real, and however big the bruise is, and however much blood there is on the floor, whatever it is, however real it is, and however much it broke your heart. It is, in the end, in some really, really hard to describe way, temporary. That in fact there is a new creation bursting forth right here in the middle of this one. And there is the new heaven and the new earth coming together and that, and that this Jesus is his resurrection insists that in the conquering of death he has brought about something new, something you can trust. He's brought about something new that you can trust, and that would be the stick-it-to-the-Caesar-man world that he's creating, right? And whatever is holding you down, and whatever feels like it's drowning you, whatever feels like it's a weight chain to your ankle, does not have the last word. That is resurrection. Mm. I thought resurrection is, you know, like when a dead body comes to life. You know, that's what I thought resurrection was. Now a guy rising from the dead 2,000 years ago, can I prove that that happened? No. <laughs> no one can. And be very suspicious of anybody who says they can prove that. And be especially suspicious of sermons where people spend 45 minutes proving to you that a man actually rose from the dead. Yeah, you got to be suspicious of any pastor who would, you know, point you to the eyewitness testimony in the Bible that says that Jesus rose from the grave and then walk you through the historical evidence. Yeah, you don't want any guy like that, you know, basically saying this is a historical fact. That would be bad, right? Nobody knows. What we know is there has been a community of people for several thousand years. So nobody knows if Jesus really rose, but we know that there's been a community of people. Right. That's the real miracle. Yeah. Insisted that something happened. That a tomb is empty. And that when you trust this story, something will be unleashed and unlocked in your heart and in your life. So yes, it's history. It's bigger and better and wider and more expansive understanding of history. Mm, bigger, wider, more expansive. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. 
What do any of those modifier words actually mean, and how do they actually add more meaning to this, the, well, the statements of the apostles that he was dead and now he's alive? So, those, so for those of you who think, what? Come on, how far-fetched is that? Try it. Try living in this story. Yeah, just try to live in this story, man. Yeah, that, that. What does that mean exactly? That's like the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Yeah, there's a noun and a verb and stuff and, you know, adjectives and adverbs. And But what does it mean? Try trusting that all those little glimpses and glances of hope and beauty and truth and light, that they weren't aberrations. They weren't mistakes. They weren't some blip in the system. They were actually showing you what it's really like. That this new life is as close as the breath you just took in. And the breath you are about to take. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Wax on, wax off. Yeah. So there you go. That was um, <clears throat> the Reverend Greg Bolt's sermon. Played it in its entirety. It didn't make it into this year's contest, but wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, how does a postmodern emergent who doesn't really believe that, you know, propositional truth really has any kind of bearing whatsoever in, you know, in our experience. It doesn't really matter. I mean, who 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 cares whether or not Jesus really rose from the grave? Just step into the story, breathe in, breathe out, and you know, there's been a community of people, you know, and yeah, wow, wow, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, that was about as satisfying as cotton candy. I mean, you've seen cotton candy, right? I mean, it's just ginormous. It's huge. And then, you know, and then you go to eat it and it just disappears. It's kind of like that. Okay. Moving along. Time for a Stephen Furtick update. We're going to check in to see what, what he did with his Easter sermon. Real 
gospel, heard the real gospel, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I'll bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? So uh, what do you think Stephen Furtick did with the biblical text? If uh, past performance here at Fighting for the Faith is any indicator of, well, <laughs> what he would do in the future or the present, you know, then, well, you're not going to be disappointed. We're not going to play the entire sermon. I just found several bites that I'm going to play for you. And by the way, I noted this, that um, Stephen Furtick, I watched the video twice, and he did not look like he was on his game at all. I, I, he, His heart really wasn't in it. It was really like he was going through the motions. It was very formulaic. It was kind of bizarre. <laughs> Makes me wonder what's going on inside of his head. But, uh, you know, or maybe he just knew that uh, <clears throat> guys like me would be listening to see what he was going to be doing with his sermon. Now, the uh, the the I think the name of his sermon was the uh, the uh, the genius of Jesus is the sermon series. The power of prediction was the name of the sermon. And it was just kind of a mess. But I teased out some of the uh, just a couple of points where he allegorizes portions of the Easter story, and then makes it about you. So, you know, we'll kind of do these in order. Here's the, uh, here's the first one. Here we go. The angel appeared to the women at the tomb and said, hey, don't be alarmed. Why are you so shocked? See, because they got there and Jesus' body wasn't in the place where they had visited it before. And they came to do some little rituals, some preparations. And, and the angel said, don't be alarmed. In other words, why are you shocked? He predicted this. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, past tense. He has risen, past tense. Well, it sounds like he's exegeting, but watch what he does. He is not here, present tense. Correct. See the place where they laid him. I could preach a whole Easter sermon on why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? No, you really can't. You can't do that. No, you that that's a that's a narcissistic twisting of God's word. But let's why you keep going to dead places looking for new life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how many how many uh, Easter sermons have I heard that same kind of narcissistic twisting? Yeah, the the twin to this is the. Uh, you know, they, they there was the big stone that you know they were worried who was going to roll the stone away. So here's the question I have for you, brothers and sisters. You know what stones need to be rolled away in your life? <laughs> Miserably narcissistic. Why you keep going to same relationships thinking it's going to satisfy you when you know it always lets you down? Why you keep going to the same sins thinking this time that it's going to fulfill you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's one example. Here's another example of narcissistically twisting the elements of the Easter story. Go tell Peter, go tell Peter that my prediction came to pass. I mean, sounds straightforward enough, right? And God sent me today to tell the one who has fallen away that he's waiting for you. Uh, what? In the place of your next step toward him. <laughs> what? So God 
sent you with the direct revelation. You know, what's the message again? Hang on a second here. In the place of your next step toward him. Yeah, okay. So are you waiting for him in the place of your next step toward him? Yeah. That he's waiting for you. Yeah. So Jesus is waiting for you in, in, the, in your next step towards him. I have no idea what that means. Next. His cross was a symbol of defeat. Yeah, well, actually, more than just a symbol. <laughs> but to those who remember, wait a minute, he promised he was going to the cross. Yeah, he did. Is that a Hammond B3 you got playing in the background? But he also promised he was going to get up from the grave. So the cross is no longer a symbol of defeat. What is it? It's a prediction of victory. Okay, that's not a bad theological point. So if there's a cross in your life today... Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. So if there's a cross in your life today... Oh, yeah. Yay. The, the guy has not found the biblical text that he will not make. He has no shame. He'll make it all about himself. So if there's a cross in your life today, it's pointing to a crown. <laughs> Whatever you're going through today is pointing toward a future that has a hope that God already knows about that he prepared for you. Yeah. So even narcissistically twisting and allegorizing Jesus's cross and resurrection and uh, making it about you. Yeah. See, there's the problem right there. You know, whenever you do something like that, you're going to miss the whole point of what scripture is really about. It's not about you. No, you're not in scripture. You're not. (laughs) It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. The texts are really about Jesus. And, uh, when you do stuff like this and you read yourself into the biblical text, you are literally blind to what the text is for real saying. So, yeah, quite a mess. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we uh, will be doing an email segment, and then we'll end the uh, this episode off with the Easter sermon I delivered on uh, Easter Sunday. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Entitled 
Well, you might just want to hear it for yourself. If you about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. If you about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think you officially suck as a human being. I think you officially suck as a human being. Listen, I can play games, we all I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act Now and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with narcissistic eisegesis and reading yourself into biblical texts as if they're parables about you, and they're not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, 
When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a little bit of email. I am way behind on this. If I don't get to your email today, those of you who know that I'm going to answer it, Stay tuned. We'll do some more email next week. All right. That's our email music. Our first email comes to us from Josh from Little Rock, Arkansas. And Josh writes, he says, I've been listening to your lecture on the prophetic gifts and found it very eye-opening. To give you a little bit of my background, I grew up in a non-denominational Pentecostal church, and I was taught Pentecostal doctrine and the word of faith heresy. I grew up thinking that the center of Christianity was Pentecost. Yeah, it's not. It's the death and resurrection of Christ. We continue, though. He says, we always prayed for revival for our city and our nation. We prayed that the Holy Spirit would come as he did at Pentecost. I thought that if we were supposed to live our lives like the apostles as our model, then we should be doing the works that Jesus did as well as the apostles. After all, Jesus said in John fourteen twelve, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so I grew up thinking this way, and it was very damaging to my faith. I attended a discipleship program after high school for four years to be trained for ministry. I learned Pentecostal doctrine. I always questioned it, though. It never lined up with what I was learning in my own study of the Bible. I'm going to pause right there. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. That nagging feeling. It's like a splinter in your brain. You can't itch it, but it's there. And you know that something's wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. I think of a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Daniel Emery Price, who um, years ago, he grew up in the Pentecostal movement himself. And as he started studying his scripture, he, he could no longer be a Pentecostal, but he couldn't figure out what he was. And, uh, and so, um, you know, he, what he, what he ended up and you know, he's now a Lutheran pastor, by the way, but for years he, uh, he would, if people ask, well, what are you? Are you a Pentecostal? Are you a Baptist? Are you a Calvinist? What are you? He would say, I'm a Narnian because he didn't know what he was, (laughs) what he was. Anyways, let me continue with your email. He says, uh, we were taught that in order to increase our faith and to live a fully spirit-filled life, then we must possess a personal private prayer language between us and the Holy Spirit. And I didn't. And to which I got to say, Josh, um, the fact that you didn't cave to the pressure, because a lot of people in the Pentecostal movement with the that constant pressure being put on them. You need to have this personal, private prayer language. You need to speak in tongues. Oftentimes, people cave under that pressure, and they just make up one. 
So I'm glad to hear that you had some backbone to you. Anyway, we continue. He says, I was, I was the only one of my friends that didn't have a personal prayer language. I was taught to ask to have faith, but it never happened. I began to question everything. I would ask questions about predestination, Calvinism, and apostasy, but my parents would never want to discuss it, and my friends thought it, I was just being super spiritual, which is ironic coming from Pentecostals. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, you know you have it bad when a Pentecostal says, you're just being super spiritual. <laughs> yeah, all right, so we continue. It says, I left the program after four years and started attending a Bible study at my girlfriend's, and she's now my wife. And uh, we went to a Southern Baptist church, which I never thought I would see the day. We w- we were studying Concise Theology by J.I. Packer, and it confirmed everything I was learning. I realized that most everything I grew up uh, learning was false. My new pastor finally started answering my questions. I began to reform. Justin Peters came to our church one weekend and also shed light on everything I learned as a Pentecostal, and I felt liberated. I'm currently reading Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything by Tullian, and it's reshaping my view of the gospel. Good book, by the way. And I'm currently attending Liberty University online and will attend Dallas Theological Seminary once I graduate. My struggle now is how do I even begin to address the false teachings of the Word of Faith movement? Uh, My parents are Word of Faith. I've tried to explain my Reformation, but it's way over their heads. They just want to love Jesus and people and not argue about theology. I know how damaging it can be. Should we try to convert people to uh, Reformed theology or Calvinism, or do I take the approach of explaining to people the true gospel versus moralism? How do you approach it? Okay. Now, obviously, I'm I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a confessional Lutheran. So, um, but let me put it this way: I have some experience in this, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of tell you what I've learned along the way. Here, here's the idea is that uh, when I became a Lutheran, I told my wife, I said, we're Lutherans now, and she said, oh, no, we're not. And uh, and and that became a real um, point of friction in our marriage. And so um, I learned very quickly that if I were to show, if I were to teach her Lutheran theology from the Book of Concord or anything that had the word Lutheran on it, she would immediately shut down. Um, you know, basically, the only thing I had at my disposal was God's Word. And here's the idea, is that if what you're believing, teaching, and confessing is truly biblical, then you'll be able to teach it to somebody using only God's Word. And uh, and that's the way we should be teaching anyway. And so because, and here's the reason why. God's Word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And as good as uh, J.I. Packer's Concise Theology is, or any book put out there you know, on a good, a good systematic uh, text, those help us in understanding the Scripture, but they're not the same as the Scripture. And so um, when, you, when you're going to confront somebody or have a dialogue with somebody about something that they're believing falsely, then the idea is is that your only, only weapon, the only thing you would need as a weapon, is the Word of God, and so be able to show them from Scripture. And as far as you know, an approach you you had talked about the idea of do I take them to the true gospel versus moralism? That is a good way to go. Um, now you know your family members you say are struggling with the Word of Faith movement, and so the idea is this is that um, the Word of Faith has a false gospel that they're hanging on to, and it's this gospel of your 
you know, the the problem that we face in in our lives, the reason why things break down and go bad and, you know, and relationships end and, you know, and finances get ruined and stuff like that is because we're not exercising our faith by decreeing and declaring and creating the future through our words. And so that that's a different gospel altogether. And you'll find that the passages that are used to create this theology, that once you put those passages back into their context, this theology doesn't emerge from the biblical text and you can begin to see it for what it is. And so uh, over and again, I tell people, that you know you you approach this prayerfully and lovingly and you and you ask questions this is always about asking questions and so the idea is is that you say you know listen you know i know this theology and i know that you know this is what you believe um but let's take a look you know you know at these biblical texts you say this or you've been taught that but let's put that text back into context and now that we put it back into context, you see what the context says and what that verse is really saying. How do you resolve the conflict, you know, the, the contrast between what you believe and what this text really says? And then let them answer the question. You know, over and again, this is what I'll say, you know, you let the other person answer the question because you don't want to argue theology. That's not going to get you anywhere. And you don't, you, and if you were to pull out the institutes or you know something like that, or the Westminster, you know, Catechism, or you know the London Baptist Confession, they're they're going to think you've joined a cult. And so you need to be able to have this dialogue respectfully by asking questions and letting the text do the work. Ask the tough question, and you know, which is how do you resolve that you believe this but the text really says this how do you resolve that that conflict that difference that contradiction and then truly let them answer the question and uh you, you know, that's the way you have to approach it but again you want to approach it prayerfully you want to approach it lovingly not combatively you're not there to argue theology and you in the i think a very good tone to approach this is a tone of concern and you know, since you know their theology and you know the liberation that you've had by by finding in the, the 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 true gospel, which by the way, the true gospels found you. You know the liberation. You you want them to have that same liberation for them for the you know for the scales to fall off their eyes and for the the see the truth. Pray fast. Approach it lovingly. Ask the tough question. Don't do it in an argumentative way. And let them answer. I think these are these are a good way of approaching these issues. All right. Next email. This one comes from Matthew in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And he writes, I recently listened to Tullian's sermon, It Is Not Finished. It was awesome. Definitely one of those sermons to listen to more than once and to add to your collection. I truly enjoyed it, but I do have a question. <laughs> Tullian Chavidgian is the one... <laughs> who uh, delivered that message. You're going to ask me the question. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe it's easier to get a hold of me than Tullian. Anyway, he says, In the sermon, Pastor Tullian belabored how our relationship with God is flat. Yeah, he did. And he says, My interpretation is that our works do not have an impact on the way God views us as individuals. Now, I'm going to point out that sentence to you. My interpretation is that our works do not have an impact on the way God views us as individuals. You're kind of right 
but not quite fully there. And that's kind of the, the reason why it's because of where you're at. But I'll clear this up in a second. But let me read the rest of the email. It says, now I do believe this. Be- uh, now I do believe this because I feel the teaching of a Christian class system leads to strife in the church and is unbiblical. However, I'm wrestling with the passages regarding the crowns and the treasures in heaven. And I'm sure you know more verses on this than I do. But the following are a few that I found through a quick study. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, and verses 19 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. James chapter 1, verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 10. And 1 Peter 5, verse 4, and so on. By the way, every one of these passages do talk about rewards and crowns and things like that. So here's, now he he continues, he says, now perhaps some of these passages point to the gift of salvation, which I can totally see, but I don't think one could argue that all of the passages do that. Could you? Nope, and I don't need to, and I'll explain in a second, but let me continue reading. He says, so if there are treasures and crowns in heaven, then they would have to be earned in some way, and therefore those specific individuals would be viewed by God in a different way, obviously not being flat. So your insight is much appreciated, Pastor Chris. Okay, now, Matt, you ask a great question, and I think it helps if you understand the categories that Tullian was working in. And I won't belabor the point. Tullian Chavidian was clearly delivering a lecture based upon Lutheran theology. Uh, That's no joke. (laughs) There's no better way to put it. But um, the idea is this, is that in Lutheran theology, we talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel, but there's another kind of subset in this, and that is the subset that some people call two kinds of righteousness, although that's not the best term for it. But the idea is this, is that um, there, when we talk about justification, you talk about it justification before God and justification before neighbor. And so it would be quorum Deo, which is what Tolin was talking about. That's our right standing before God, and that is established by everything that Christ has done for us. We do not contribute to our justification quorum Deo. That being the case, we are now free in Christ to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. See Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, and so and our good works are for the sake of our neighbor, not for our sake. And so that second category is coram mundo, how we live out our faith uh, before the world. And so the idea is is that how we live out our faith before the world doesn't creep back into um, our right standing before God. And so when Tullian was talking about our relationship with God being flat. He's basically saying that, listen, it's not like God is up in heaven looking down, and some days he's really grumpy at you, and he's on a mood swing. You know, some days he's happy, and some days he's not. Some days he really loves you, and other days, oh, not so much. No, (laughs) that's not it at all, and that's the point that he's making. And so the idea is, is that because Christ has 
totally saved us. And I mean that, totally. He's bled and died for every single one of your sins. From the sin of Adam and Eve, which was imputed to you, to the sin that you uh, commit as you're drawing your last breath when you're not loving God with your whole heart, as the law commands you to do. Every sin has been atoned for by Christ, and your relationship with God, quorum Deo, is established by what Christ has done. That's the sense in which it's flat. And so here's then the idea. How do we then look at the passages that talk about rewards in heaven? There truly are rewards. And I don't have a problem with saying that some people are going to get like amazing rewards. Me, not so much. Them, amazing, okay? So, I mean, some people are going to have palatial mansions. I'm kind of shooting for a park bench and a newspaper, but that's a different story. But the idea then is this is that God truly does reward our good works. They truly are good, and he does reward them. But that still doesn't change the fact that our relationship is flat. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, the one thing that everybody who receives rewards from God has in common is that they are all blood-bought children of God. And that's the operative word, children. As a father, let me kind of do this via analogy here. As a father, I have three children. They're all grown now. But uh, there was a time when they were not grown, and they all lived under my roof. And uh, they would, well, some of my kids, they engaged in sports. In fact, two of them, well, no, actually all three of them, they, they all swam competitively. And some did better than others in competitive swimming. It's true. Some of them had more ribbons and medals than others. But see, the thing is, is that I didn't love them any less. It's not like because my son earned more medals than one of my daughters in swimming freestyle, that I somehow loved him more. And that because of that, that made it so that the other children were lesser. <laughs> no, not at all. And so I think that kind of is, is the idea, is that so, yes, God truly does reward our good works, and we should believe this because Scripture so clearly says that. But that doesn't change the fact that our right standing before God is done is accomplished by Christ and not by the rewards we earn for our good works. And see, our good works do not earn us salvation. They, they, God rewards them truly, and I have no idea what the rewards are going to be. And it's like it doesn't even cross my mind because that's not – I don't do them for the rewards. I do them because I'm a new creation in Christ. So the idea then is, is that understanding rewards rightly and understanding that quorum Deo and quorum Mundo, it doesn't change the fact that, that our relationship is flat. Just like parents don't love – well, some do, but just like parents should not love one child more than another because they earn more trophies than, you know, the other kids, uh, in, you know, that they've, that they've born. That does, you know, it's the same thing applies. The one thing we all have in common is we're all brothers and sisters and children of God. That's the idea. Okay, next email. This next email comes to us from Jim in Tupelo, Mississippi. Jim writes, he says, I am surrounded by pre-mill, pre-tribulation dispensationalists. Um, Jim, you live in Tupelo, Mississippi. <laughs> kind of goes with the territory, you know. Anyway, he says, in this part of the country, it seems to be evidence of apostasy if one claims any other position in the study of eschatology. Yeah, I, that's a cultural thing. 
I think going back to the days of the Schofield Study Bible um, down in the South, but he says, Would you please consider taking a few moments to exegete one of their favorite passages of Scripture at some point in the near future? Well, I'll do that right now. That would be uh, your take on Revelation chapter 4, <laughs> beginning <laughs> with verse 1. Oh, Jim, you are <laughs> you are an evil person. Okay, yeah, wherein they teach that that passage is proof of the secret rapture of the church with much gratitude, Jim <laughs> Tupelo, Mississippi. Okay, so we're going to use a grenade to attack a fly. Okay, all right, I can do this. So uh, the <laughs> the passage in question, by the way, I when I was a Nazarene, I was taught this verse means this, by the way. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. And in fact, I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. All right? And see if you can spot the rapture doctrine in here. Okay? I, this is not a trick question. See if you can spot it. If you've never been taught the doctrine of the rapture, you're going to be hard-pressed to find the rapture. But it's in verse 1, but I just want to add some context to it. So here it is. Are you ready? Here we go. After this, I, this is John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So did you catch the um, the rapture teaching there? If you blinked, you missed it. Um, <laughs> okay, so what's going on here? Well, here here are the words that the this is the the words that according to those who believe in the rapture teach the rapture are these words. Come up here. <laughs> yeah, see, it doesn't work. I'll tell you why it doesn't work. The reason why it doesn't work is because that's not the referent. Come up here is not a command to the church. It is a command to the Apostle John. If you read the beginning of uh, the book of Revelation, you'll kind of get the context here. Just watch the flow. Here's what it says. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So there was an angel that God sent to John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, so there's an angel sent to John. So it was the angel who said, come up here. That's the context. And there's a little bit more here. Um, so John says, behold, verse seven, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So there he has, if you would, a beatific vision of Jesus. 
and you know Jesus is speaking in a loud voice, and it says here, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So you kind of get the idea here, is, is that so there's an angel sent to him, that's the first, then he ha- hears the voice of Jesus, he turns around and he sees this amazing thing, and Jesus has said to him, write these letters to these seven churches, and he lists them off, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, and uh, you know, you get the point. Okay, so then John then takes chapters 2 and 3, you know, and those record for us the letters that Jesus had him write down, that Jesus dictated to John, and no sooner is he done writing the letters that the scene changes, and after this, now we're chapter 4, verse 1, I looked and behold a door standing in heaven, the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, that's not, the referent is not the rapture. The person being spoken to is John, and it's the first voice that he heard, and that was of the angel. And he says, I will show you what must take place after this. So for for somebody to say Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 teaches the secret rapture is to basically be, well, that's deceptive. And there's no way on earth that Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 can teach a secret rapture at all. It's not about the rapture. It's about John actually being called up to heaven, and then from that point on in the book of Revelation, he writes down and explains to us what he saw while he was up in heaven. That's what's going on there. Come up here is not talking about a secret rapture. Yeah. All right, last email comes to us from Casey, and Casey did not tell me where he's from. By the way, if you want me to answer your emails, you got to let me know where you're from. Otherwise, I assign you a place on the planet and so Casey is from Visalia, California. Visalia. Yeah. All right. So Casey writes, uh, my first question is this. Is tithing mandated for the New Testament church? Answer, by the way, Casey, no, it's not. Uh, Christians are not under the old covenant mosaic command to tithe. They're not at all. Um, but, however, Scripture makes it clear. The Apostle Paul writes that uh, we are to, uh, those who preach the gospel are to make their living from the gospel. Let me see, muzzle and didn't pull this up in my uh uh yeah 1 Corinthians 9 you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain so 1 Corinthians 9 kind of gives us the idea that what is required of Christians if you want to kind of put it that way is that they pay their pastors so that they are able to make a living um yeah, uh, yeah. As a pastor, so First Corinthians chapter nine verse eight. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, is it of oxen that God is concerned? Does He not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, that, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even 
more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So the right that he's talking about here is that, um, that, that you know, it, in fact, let me go back a little bit in the context. Uh, do we then have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles? Or is it only I, uh, Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So here's the idea. <clears throat> Christians are not required legalistically by the Mosaic Covenant or even according to the Mosaic Commands to uh, to give a, a, a blanket 10% of their income. They're not. What they are required to do, though, is to make sure that their pastor is able to make a living as a pastor, okay? Those who preach the gospel to make their living by the gospel, Paul writes in this text. So the idea then is is that we as Christians, not under the, the compulsion of the Mosaic Law, are not required to give a specific amount, but we give as we are able with this understanding that everything that we own belongs to God. We have been bought with a price, so everything we are and have belongs to God and everything that has been given to us as a trust. So the idea then is is that it's God's will that our pastors make a living by being a pastor, and if you're not paying your pastor enough that he can make a living and actually afford, you know, to you know go to the mall and buy clothes instead, the only place he can go is like a secondhand store. Then I would say you're being wicked. I that's that's wrong. Um, you know, you know, I'm not saying that he needs to be able to afford a Rolex, but he needs to be able to. Make his living well as a pastor, and so what are we to give? Well, that that's an amount that you determined between you and God. And so, um, by the way, I go into this in much greater depth um, on my critique of Robert Morris's teaching on the blessed life, and um, I'll put a link up to that episode of Fighting for the Faith uh, where I go into it in more detail. So look for this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Friday, April tenth, twenty fifteen, and I'll in the the, the uh, additional resources, and it'll be a link to my debunking of Robert Morris's blessed life, where I go into greater detail. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has the strict command to give a tithe, and that was like a tax, if you would. Um, so anyway, next uh, you you had another kind of kind of follow up questions. Uh, secondly, if I am concerned about the teaching of my pastor or someone at my church, what is the biblical way to approach them? Again, you should approach them, approach them prayerfully, um, with you know, not to argue, but basically to confront them and basically say, "This is what you're saying. This is what God's word says. How do you reconcile the contradiction?" But with the idea of somebody who's teaching publicly in the church, you need to tell them you need to repent and you need to correct the record and you need to teach what God's word says, which your teaching is not the truth. And uh, and so th- that's the idea, and then um, and then the, you, the next follow up question is: There ever a point in which it would be appropriate to leave a church? Yes, it is appropriate to leave a church if a pastor persists in uh, teaching false doctrine and, and teaching falsely, um, and not and is not rightly handling God's word or is, you know manipulating God's word and making it man centered rather than Christ centered things like that. Those are appropriate times when it you know not only is it appropriate to leave, it's probably your duty to do so. All right, that's all the email that we have time for. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with uh, Mike's Easter sermon from this past Sunday. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 
Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with, well, I can't say it's a good one. I'll just say it's one of the ones I preached. An Easter sermon. I think it points us to Jesus and what he's done. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via, well, Pastor Roseboro. <laughs> the name of the sermon is entitled Risen Indeed, and it's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. But I also throw in quite a bit of uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, uh, not 1, chapter 15. So, um, the. To kind of deconstruct this, in fact, let me back off on the music, to kind of deconstruct what this is, what I try to do in my sermons, and so I don't normally talk about what I do in my sermons, but what I try to do in my sermons, number one, I assume I'm preaching to Christians. Big difference in uh, the way that uh, some people preach. Many people, they assume that they're preaching to non-Christians. I assume I'm preaching to Christians rather than non-Christians, and I'm placarding Christ and what he's done and assuring people of what he's done for us using the text. And I try to be extremely exegetical in how I do it, although my uh, <clears throat> the technique I use is a little bit of a blending between ex- you know, an exegetical sermon and a traditional homily. 
In fact, um, I, I, my wife and I were talking about this once, and I call it an exajala homily. homily, homily. <laughs> I can't remember the exahomily. <laughs> Which I <laughs> never mind. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do to end this uh, first hour. So, without any further ado, here's the sermon I delivered this past Sunday entitled, He's Risen Indeed. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Christ is risen. In the name of Jesus. So this is an interesting day. In the church year. And the reason I say it's interesting is because you're either going to hear Christ crucified and risen for your sins if you go to church, or you're going to hear something completely different. Now, I, noted, I note this fact, that there are many pastors today who don't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And they hide their unbelief in strange Easter sermons. S- strange Easter sermons that kind of go something like this. And so we've read in the gospel text today that Jesus has risen from the grave. But what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that Jesus has the power to resurrect the dead dreams in your life. Or if you do have a dead relationship, are things going terribly with the miss as well? There's resurrection power for your marriage. How about your dead finances? Are you in, up to your eyeballs in debt? Well, that's death, you know. And, you know, clearly your finances are buried in a tomb. But Jesus has come to open up the tomb of your finances and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> okay? I, clearly, pastors who preach like this have become so earthly-minded that they're of no heavenly good. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is there anyone here who has figured out how to cheat death. Show of hands? Nope. Okay. Now, I don't mean to sound, well, depressing, but over on that side of the church, there's more people over there than there are right here. Right? Yeah. The graveyard is only getting more inhabitants, if you would. So none of us has figured out how to cheat death. But see, that's the thing. Jesus did cheat death. Now, I would point you this morning to our epistle text in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to fill out a little bit of this. 
And uh, let's take a look at what the text says. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Now, brothers, and by the way, I know we live in a time when political correctness says that whenever somebody says the word brothers, they have to also mean sisters. If anyone says mankind, they really mean humanity because somehow these words that were used in the past somehow try to exclude women. When it talks like this, it includes all of us. So brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preach to you. Gospel, what a great word. We've all heard it, and we've, we've heard it used in kind of strange context. We all know about gospel music, right? What's gospel music? Well, it's a particular genre of music, but that's not how Paul's using this term. The term euangelion, it means good news, and it's really, really good news. And so here's the idea. I want to remind you of the good news that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. Now, we're in a Lutheran church, and in the Lutheran church, we oftentimes talk about Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation when he was called on the carpet regarding him basically repudiating and denying all the things that he was saying in his books at the Diet of Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S, which is a weird way to think about things in English, but it's pronounced Worms because otherwise it's the Diet of Worms, and that does not sound like a good diet, Okay. But he was told to recant all the things that he had written, and he basically said, it is not safe to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. And Luther, you know, they'll see statues of Luther or pictures of Luther standing there with the here I stand. You know, it's, it's a big moment, right? But see, Luther is so uncreative. He got this from Paul. Here's what Paul says. Remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. You are standing, if you believe this gospel, on some very important promises. So here is what Paul says. By this gospel, you are saved. Saved. Saved from what? A bad hair day? Bad finances? Poor relationships? What exactly are you being saved from? Well, Paul's not talking about something as trivial as that. He's talking about being saved from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. We all know that we're all going to die someday, and we all know that we're going to stand before Jesus someday. And trust me when I tell you this, the last thing you want when standing before Jesus is have to give an accounting of the things that you've done in your life. I know I don't want to have to give an accounting because when I look at the math, it doesn't stack up very well for me. But this is why it's good news. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Are you ready? Remember those uh, commercials that they had a few years back? You know, the, the, the guy who had the uh, E.F. Hutton as his financial advisor. Remember those commercials? You know, two people would be talking and say, yeah, I was talking to my financial advisor, E.F. Hutton, and everyone in the, all of a sudden, you know, they're in this restaurant, and everyone just stops and goes, right? They have to listen. Oh, E.F. Hutton is giving advice. Well, think of it this way, which I, I've passed on to you as of first importance, what I received. Listen carefully. Christ died for our sins. That's right. Every single one of them. From the sin that you were, well, credited with, 
the sin of Adam and Eve that was given to you, reckoned to you, and you were born dead in trespasses and sins, to the last sin that you commit as you draw your final breath here on earth. Christ has died for every single one of them. So Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And that, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And see, that's the good news. We are truly saved by what Christ has done for us. He's done it all. And the, one of the ways in which we know that this is absolutely true is because Jesus did something that nobody else has ever done. He actually conquered death. He was graveyard dead on Friday afternoon when he cried out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit and then gave up his spirit and he died. The Roman soldiers were kind of a little bit surprised at how quickly he died, but just to make sure One of the Roman soldiers took his lance and shoved it up into Jesus' cavity right here under his heart, and out came blood and water. He was graveyard dead. But on the third day, he rose, and I mean rose bodily from the grave, rose in such a way that he was able to eat fish and food with other people, rose in such a way that when he appeared to the disciples, they said, ah, it's a ghost, and he said, no. A ghost, a spirit doesn't have flesh and blood as you see that I have. He rose from the grave. And you sit there and go, but nobody has ever done that. Right. That's kind of the point. But he did. You know, if you know the story of Harry Houdini, you all remember the escape artist Harry Houdini? Once a year, there is a seance held I think it's, it's held every year on the anniversary of Harry Houdini's death. And Harry Houdini basically asked his family and friends to ha- hold the seance and to see if he can actually conquer death because he says, if I can, I'm going to appear on that day, you know, on that one of those anniversary days, you know, during the seance. And, uh, well, Harry Houdini continues to not be able to escape the jaws of death. The one trap Harry Houdini has never been able to escape from, Christ did. He conquered it. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. Now Paul continues, verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Oh, you think this is a problem that exists just today? There's plenty of pastors and preachers and Christians who say, I don't know if he really rose finally from the dead, Right? Well, this is what Paul says. How can some of you, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Bupkis. Amounts to nothing. It's a hill of beans. You might as well be sleeping in this morning. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, you got better things to do on a Sunday because he's, well, just like everybody else. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, he really didn't die for your sins, and that's kind of Paul's point. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But God did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is 
futile. It's doo-doo. And you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they are lost. Does the Apostle Paul sound like it's possible for you to believe that Jesus didn't really rise bodily from the grave, but somehow there's some kind of moral lesson that we can apply to our lives if we don't believe that Jesus rose? No. The Bible's clear. If Jesus didn't actually conquer death, he isn't who he claimed to be. You're still dead in your sins, and you might as well party like it's 1999 because you're going to die soon anyway. Cold, hard reality. But Paul says this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, well, then we are to be pitied more than all men. You see, Jesus came to solve a very specific problem. And the problem he came to solve was not your bad hair days or how poorly your relationships are going or how much debt you're in or any such nonsense. Instead, Jesus came to actually solve the one problem that really matters and the one that we all face. That is that we are all dying I've been around death long enough to know just how depressing it is. Last year, I lost my best friend. Put me into mourning for the better part of a month. I did my best not to let it show when I was preaching from the pulpit. But get me home after church, and I was in a funk. Death stinks. It takes our loved ones from us. And oftentimes we try to comfort ourselves by saying things like, well, at least that person's no longer suffering. But I think that's just all some talk that we talk to ourselves to somehow find a way to take all of this pain and suffering that we're going through because death really stinks. Put it into a box and try to find a way that we can stop thinking about it because when you're in the middle of your pain and suffering and mourning, it hurts like you wouldn't believe There's sorrow. There's sadness. It's difficult to think. Time slows down. And then you get angry. You get angry at the situation, and you even get angry at God. This is what happens. Any of us who've been around death know exactly what I'm talking about. We've all been there. We've all done that. And the reality is is that if this hasn't affected you, just give it time. Because death is no respecter of persons. Death visits the old and the young. It doesn't matter. In fact, each and every one of us are just a heartbeat away from our appointment with death. And the reality is is that once we draw our last, Scripture says it is appointed once for man to live and die and then face the judgment. So Jesus came to solve the real problem that we have. And that's the core problem, the problem of our sin and our rebellion against God. And if God gave us all what we deserve, then each and every one of us are ungodly and truly deserve a devil's hell. There's none of us, not one of us, that can say, oh, well, I'm a good person. Well, I've got news for you, friend. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. This is why Paul says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, well, then we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, the problem that Jesus came to solve is not a temporal one. It's an eternal one. Then he says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He has. He actually conquered it. This is not a myth. This is not legend. This is history, and this is fact. 
And Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice what he says. First fruits. Jesus is the down payment and guaranteeing the inheritance. He's the first of the new creation. And the new creation is coming in total. For since death came through a man, that would be our parents, Adam and Eve, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ is the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And notice what the text says. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not our friend. Death is our mortal enemy. And that's not a play on words. At the very end, Christ will take death itself, that last enemy, and he will destroy it. And those who are in Christ, you baptized believers in Jesus, who've had your sins washed away, who've, who've been made, had your filthy garments made white in the blood of the Lamb, you will never face God's wrath. You will live eternally with him because he lives he, and when he returns, he's going to destroy death. And for us, it is life everlasting. Jesus in John chapter 11 says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Jesus never lies. He conquered death. John chapter 3, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You don't have to earn it. Not a thing that you can do to pay for it. It's all done for you and given to you as a gift by the gracious mercy and love and kindness of our Heavenly Father. If you tried to earn it, then you really insult God because he gives it away as a gift. Do you believe? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and Jesus is the light. And people, well, they love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 36 of the same chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of your life and your death at this point. Christ has bled and died for your sins. And he is raised again from the grave, proving that he is who he claimed to be, the very Son of God in human flesh, and that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted by God the Father. 
So believe. Trust in this Jesus. Repent of your sins and your wickedness. Believe that he bled and died for you. And you have now, presently, eternal life. And so we come to our text again from the gospel. It says this, that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body very early on the first day of the week. It was a Sunday. Just after the sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and asked each other who will roll away the stone from the entrance. They looked and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. Notice even the angel here makes it clear that Jesus is the one now who was crucified. He is forever your crucified Savior. Forever he is the crucified, and he's crucified for you. But he is risen. He is not here. Why? Because he rose bodily, just as he said. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. Now you, after you leave here, you go, you tell Oslo, you tell Alvarado, you tell Warren, you tell Grand Forks. Tell them all that Christ is risen, that he's bled and died and rose again from the grave and conquered death and the devil, and he's done it for you and for your sins. Let them know the good news that there is life in Jesus Christ and that the grave doesn't have the final say. Even that mortal enemy of ours, the grave, he will take that thing and destroy it on the last day. And the day is coming when there will be no death. And those of us in Christ will live eternally, face to face, with the glorified, risen Son of God who bled and died for you and me and conquered death for you and for me. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.